You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Ken and worship team, thank you for leading us today. Good morning. It's so good to be back with you. Last week, I had the privilege of being in Midland, Texas with our sister church, Sovereign Grace Church of Midland. Got to just be there with them. Got to preach God's word. Got to see that congregation. Um, It was just a sweet time. Um, But as good as it was, I missed you. Uh, It's always, you know, looking. Thank you. Though I knew some of the folks there, it's just not the same when you're preaching God's Word and you look up and you're just looking at a bunch of people you don't know. Um, I mean, God's Word is still true, and I still just felt their support, and they were a great congregation to preach to, but I didn't know them like I know you. And so I am so glad to be back this morning, and we are back in Luke's Gospel. So if you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 9. This morning, we are picking up where we left off, verses 28 through 36 is our text for this morning. Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some on that back table back there. We would invite you to grab one. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you're welcome to keep that one. We just make the Word available to you. I would invite you to, if you're not... If you don't have a physical one, grab one on your phone, but I really do encourage everyone to follow along as we read God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28, we read, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed him. Overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. J.C. Ryle, an English pastor from a century ago, a man who I've already quoted a number of times throughout our series through Luke's Gospel, and you will probably hear me quote 
many more times. He wrote the following about the passage that we are reflecting on today. I quote, The event described in these verses, verses commonly called the transfiguration, is one of the most remarkable in the history of our Lord's earthly ministry. It's one of those passages which we should always read with peculiar thankfulness. It lifts the corner of the veil which hangs over the world to come and throws light on some of the deepest truths of our faith. Yes, it does. I, I wholeheartedly agree with Mr. Ryle that this is one of those passages which we should read with peculiar thankfulness. Now, if you're wondering why is that, isn't all of God's Word equal? And so why should we have a unique and peculiar thankfulness? Here's why. Because today, we're given a, a glimpse of Christ's glory. The glory that He had before the world began. The glory that He would reveal at His ascension. And the glory that we will see when He comes again. We're given a glimpse of that today. At the transfiguration. But I'm aware, I'm aware that in order to see this glory, we all need God's help. I think about these words in verse 29. It says, while Jesus was praying, this happened. It's not the first time Luke's let us know that major things happened when Jesus was praying. So I, I think it would be wise for us to follow Jesus' lead. And before we go any further, ask the Lord, do for us what happened to Peter, James, and John that day. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So would you join me and let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that not only do you allow us to come to you, you welcome us as your children when we come to you. Not only do you hear us, but Lord, you do for us what we could never do on our own. And today we ask you, we ask you to reveal to us the glory of Christ and to let us hear your voice speaking to us. Do that by the power of the Spirit, we pray. Open up your word. And as we just sing, saying, show us Christ. We pray this for the glory of His name. Amen. Well, I want to divide this passage into two parts. Pretty simple. It goes like this. The transfiguration, verses 28 through 32. And the confirmation, verses 33 through 36. That's how I think this passage best breaks up. And so that's how I want us to look at it this morning. So let's return to verses 28 through 32. And let's look at this event called... The transfiguration. But before we consider all the events that occurred on the mountain, we first must pay attention to when this event took place and why that is significant to us. Look again at verse 28. Luke tells us, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Think about what, what we just heard. Luke makes it clear that what took place at the transfiguration was closely connected to the confession of Peter 
and the passion prediction that Jesus shared with his disciples. So look, look at verse 28 when it says, After these sayings, what sayings is he referring to? He's referring to what just happened in the passage before where Jesus says to his disciples, Who does everybody say that I am? And then he says to Peter, Who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this confession, You are the Christ of God. And then Jesus tells them about what lies ahead for them. So basically this, this phrase, as the, after these sayings, is, is referring to verses 18 through 27, our text from two weeks ago, which means that what Jesus said in verse 27 is connected to this event. So go back and look from our passage two weeks ago. Jesus ended by saying this, but I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, I didn't comment on that last or two weeks ago. And you may be wondering, what did Jesus mean when he said, there's some of you standing here today that will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Well, I believe Peter, John, and James were given a glimpse of Christ's kingdom before they tasted death at the transfiguration. That's what's happening. When Jesus said that, he wasn't just speaking of something way down the road. He was telling them, before you taste death, you're going, some of you, not all of you, some of you are going to see my kingdom. And, and I believe that occurred here on that mountain. And the fact that Jesus took these three disciples up on that mountain, it's symbolic. See, if, if we keep the Old Testament in mind, we should expect some form of divine revelation to take place. And that's exactly what occurred. Look at verse 29. It tells us that as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. As Jesus was praying, something occurred. And, 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 and what Luke is doing here is, is difficult. Luke is trying to describe the indescribable splendor and glory that would have been visible had you been there on the mountain and saw him. All of a sudden, his face had, had, had a different look about it. His clothes, actually the Greek word for, for white is lightning. There's just something radiant, almost hard to look at. All of a sudden that occurred. That's why this particular event throughout church history has been called the transfiguration. All of a sudden, Jesus doesn't just look like an ordinary man. You see a glory about him. But notice what else made this event quite unique and extraordinary, and even heavenly. Look at verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. It would have been significant enough had Jesus just been transfigured before Peter, James, and John's eyes. But we're told Moses and Elijah, two Old Testament prophets, who, by the way, are no longer alive. They are in heaven. And now they appear with Jesus on 
the mountain. There are many reasons this is significant. One is, if we go back to chapter 9, twice now we've heard both from the crowd that was talking to Herod and in Jesus' question to his disciples, who does everybody say that I am? Some of the things they said is, well, some people think you're Elijah. Well, that can't be the case because he's right here. Some, some think you're an Old Testament prophet who's come alive. Well, here's, here's Moses, the prophet of all Old Testament prophets. We're told by Luke that, that all three of these men are, aren't just together, but they all displayed a sense of glory. There's a glory about all of them, and yet the glory of Jesus is, is far greater as we'll see. Now notice what Luke does in verse 32. It's interesting. Right after drawing our attention to these three glorious subjects, he immediately shifts our focus onto three ordinary, not-so-glorious men who are waking up from a deep sleep. Did you catch that? Here are these three glorious men. Jesus in all of His glory. Moses. Elijah, and it's like the, the camera pans away from them to these three men waking up, wiping the sleep from their eye, wiping the drool off their face, just opening up their eyes for the first time after Jesus has been praying. I love the way in which Luke describes these three disciples waking up from sleep to find Jesus and Moses and Elijah in their radiant glory. To me, it conveys to us as the reader that Peter, James, and John, what they saw at that moment was far better than a dream. I'm sure there's been some point in your life where something happened that was so amazing, you said, this is too good to be true. It must be a dream. I wonder if the disciples thought the same. Here they are. They wake up from this sleep. Last time they saw Jesus, He was huddled over praying. They get tired, they go to sleep, they wake up, and He is in His full heavenly glory, and there is Moses, and there is Elijah. Th these men must have wondered, were they dreaming? See, these three men saw something majestic and otherworldly, and yet what they saw was not make-believe. It was not a dream. See, they were given a glimpse of the glory of Christ that would be revealed at His ascension, and that will ultimately be revealed at His second coming. Why do I say that? Because that word glory, when it was used back in chapter 9, verse 26, spoke of the glory that will be seen when Jesus comes again. Listen to what Jesus said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in His glory and the glory of the Father and of His holy angels. And it says the exact same thing again in chapter 21, verse 27. And then at the end of Luke's gospel, in chapter 24, verse 26, Jesus says this, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? So this is a future glory that they're seeing. Right now, all they've been able to see, though they, they know that He's more than a man, they've just been able to see the, 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 the human side of Jesus. Obviously, He's done things that only God could do, like calm the storm. 
But he just looked like a man, and now here he is appearing as he will at his ascension and when he comes again. That's what they're getting to see on that day. Which then raises this question. Why did Jesus reveal to them his future glory at this point in time? It's amazing enough that he does this, but why now? Why, why, why after all of this has taken place? I mean, why not do this at the very beginning of your ministry? Just say, boys, we're going to start out this way. Let's all go up to this mountain. I'm going to show you who I really am. So there's no doubt about it. Why now? Well, to answer that question, we must stop and consider two things. When did the transfiguration occur? And second, we must also listen in to this conversation that took place between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So let's begin by thinking once again about when this story took place. And we're told that this transfiguration took place a week after the following words were spoken. Verses 18 through 27. And I just want to draw our attention to verse 22. Because if we consider that this took place after Jesus said this, we begin to understand why the transfiguration took place. The Son of Man, Jesus said, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. Consider for a moment this passion prediction is what verse 22 is called. Jesus says to his disciples, guys, I, I got to tell you something. Soon, I'm going to be mistreated and accused of crimes by the religious leader that I did not commit, but it's all according to the plan of God. Remember that word must, this must take place. It's Luke's way of saying this is according to God's will and I'm going to die and three days later, I'm going to rise. Now, consider for a moment this passion prediction and then think about this topic of conversation at the transfiguration. What was the topic of conversation? Well, the topic of conversation that day reveals to us why Jesus appeared in his glory. And what were they talking about? We don't have to guess. In verse 31, Luke tells us, that they spoke of Jesus' departure. The word there for departure in the Greek is his exodus. Now that's significant on a number of fronts. First of all, it's just speaking of his death at the most simple, basic level, that he's going to die and accomplish a lot in Jerusalem through his death, but it's also speaking of more than that. By saying it's his exodus, it's using language to speak of his resurrection and ascension, which is going to occur at the end of this gospel. And not only that, the exodus is being used strategically by Luke because Jesus will deliver his people from slavery as the Messiah. It's no wonder Moses is right there. Oh, what happened in Egypt was just a foreshadowing of what the Messiah will do. He will be greater than Moses, as the book of Hebrews tells us. And think of this for, for just a moment. Moses and Elijah 
who represent the law and the prophets, they knew ahead of time about the exodus of Christ. That's why they're talking about it with Jesus. It doesn't just say, and Jesus was telling them, and they're going, really, that's interesting. We had no idea. It appears that Moses and Elijah, they knew that this was going to take place, that one day, not knowing all the details, God was going to do a greater exodus. That God was going to deliver His people. That's why Luke informs us that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus did the following. Now before I read verses 24, or chapter 24, verse 27, do you remember what happened on the road to Emmaus? Jesus has been crucified. He's risen. And He meets two of these disciples. They're utterly confused about all the events that have occurred. And then we read this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How could he do that? How could he take them back and start with Genesis and go through the Old Testament and talk about things that had to do with him if Moses and Elijah had no idea that they were talking about this future one who would come and save God's people? See, it makes sense that Moses and Elijah, the the men who represent the law and the prophets, are standing there on the mountain talking about his exodus. See, the discussion that day on the mountain centered around the death of Jesus and how his death was fulfilling all of Scripture. But why that conversation on that day and in that way? I mean, what, what does, let me, let me put it differently. What does the transfiguration have to do with Christ's crucifixion? I mean, great, Jesus, you're showing them your glory. But what does the glory that you have had from all eternity and the glory that you will reveal to them at your ascension and the glory that you will show to all of your children when you come again, what does that have to do with the event that was taking place about you talking about the crucifixion. Those tombs don't seem together, right? Like out of all times you're showing your glory. You, the conversation wasn't heaven. The conversation is your death. How do these two go together? Well, the answer is this, the transfiguration. It revealed to Peter, James, and John that after Christ suffered humiliation, he would experience exaltation. After his crucifixion, there would be glorification. They were getting a glimpse of that. Now, make no mistake about it. By saying that after his humiliation, he would experience exaltation. And after his crucifixion, there would be glorification. I'm in no way implying that Jesus would become in some way more glorious after his death and resurrection than he already was. No, the transfiguration reveals to us That the splendor and glory that Christ had at that time. And it reveals to us the glory that He that would be revealed with with His death and resurrection. And, 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 And that's only seen. That's only seen through the cross. See, the cross is the great display of Christ's glory. These two events aren't aren't at odds. We cannot understand the glory of Christ unless we understand the reason that Christ came. 
What makes him so glorious is not simply he can say to the wind and the wave, be still. What makes Christ so glorious is not just that he can say to the dead girl, get up. What makes Christ so glorious is not just he can take a few fish and a few loaves and feed multitudes. What makes Christ so glorious is that the perfect Son of God would die for sinners like you and me. That's what makes Him so glorious. And that's when His glory is going to be on full display. So how should we respond to this glorious revelation about Jesus? If that was the point of the transfiguration, was to show these guys, hey guys, when you go to Jerusalem in a little while and you, you see me being arrested and beaten and mocked and then one day you see me hanging on that cross in shame and in agony, don't forget what you saw on the mountain. What are we to do with this? Was this just for Peter, James, and John? No, it's for us. So how should we respond to this glorious revelation? Well, most simply put, not the way Peter did. <laughs> Not the way Peter did. Look at now verses 33 through 36, and we now get this confirmation. The transfiguration has taken place, and now there's this moment of confirmation. We move now from the transfiguration of Jesus to the confirmation of God the Father regarding the identity of Jesus. And we read in verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then Luke says, not knowing what he said. Don't you just love Luke's editorial comment at the end? That, that is gold. He could have just left that off. And he wasn't saying it to poke at Peter. I think he was helping us see, can't we all, in our enthusiasm and our zeal without knowledge, I mean, can you imagine being Peter? You've been asleep. Last time you saw Jesus, he, he was praying. You wake up, here he is in all of his glory, and there's Moses and there's Elijah. And Peter being the way he always is, he just speaks sometimes without thinking. This is a good thing. This is amazing. Here's what we should do, Jesus. How about this? We build three tents and we just stay here. And Luke says, he wasn't aware of what he was saying. Now what is it about Peter's comment that was so wrong? In one way, he's right when he says to Jesus, it's a good thing we're here. Yes, it is. So then what did he get wrong? Two things in particular. He appeared to be putting Jesus on par with Elijah and Moses and making the mount a place of worship. Jesus, this is amazing. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to build three tents. Now, don't misunderstand that language. It's not talking about a tent like you camp in. This is a tabernacle, a place of worship. 
Most likely, we can't say for sure. What do you think Peter's thinking? This is a good thing. This is exactly what God's people need. Now, we haven't gotten this far yet, but we're going to find out in Luke's gospel that what's going on in the temple is less than honorable. So maybe we should move away from there. Maybe, maybe, okay, this is a good thing. We're just going to have everybody come up this mountain and they can just, this is going to be a place of worship. But he appears to be putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus in the same category and making the focus about this mountain. And it's not about the mountain. And it's not about Moses and it's not about Elijah. This is about the glory of Jesus. That's the first mistake he makes. The second mistake, he, he wants to stay there instead of letting Jesus fulfill his mission. Jesus just told him, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And Peter, in his enthusiasm, said, why don't we just stay here? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stay there? It's almost as if Peter is just saying, Jesus, let's just... Let's make this a thing. This would be a good thing. But it wasn't the plan of God. See, I think Peter's response is instructive to us. I think instead of sitting back and, and just thinking, man, what an epic, what an epic fail here. We should look at Peter's response and say, what can we learn? And here's what I think we can take away from Peter's response. It reminds us that when we're left to ourselves, we too will come up with the wrong ideas about Jesus and how to worship him. And that has plagued the church for over 2,000 years. People thinking they know who Jesus is and therefore they know how to worship him. Listen, human knowledge... And experience will never, ever help us know who Jesus is or how to worship Him. We need something greater than that. We need something outside of ourselves. Left to ourselves, we're all going to do what Peter did. Be filled with zeal without knowledge. That's why I think what took place next. I believe it was a gracious gift from God to Peter, James, and John. Look what occurs next, verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, why is that significant? Once again, think the Old Testament. The last chapter of the book of Exodus God has delivered His people. He's given them the law at Mount Sinai. And He tells them, I want to dwell among you as a people, so I want you to build a tabernacle, and I'm going to dwell among it. And we come to Exodus 40, 35, and we're told this. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Did you hear that? The tabernacle is done and the presence of God comes down like a cloud and Moses says, nope, I can't go in. Not true of Peter, James, and John. You wonder why they were afraid? 
We are getting to go where Moses couldn't go. We get to see what Moses couldn't see. We get to behold this. Think about what just occurred. These three men were brought into the presence of God as we find out in verse 35 to hear the voice of God. They're going to get to hear the voice of God. See, what Peter got wrong about Christ, God the Father would make abundantly clear in his declaration. So look at verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Just like at... Jesus' baptism, we hear a voice from heaven declaring who Jesus is. And we hear three things, three things being said about him that we must understand. First of all, he's the son. Now that is not just speaking of his relation to God the Father. It means more than that. If we had time... uh, To to do this, we can unpack each one of these in light of the Old Testament. But what's most likely going on here by Jesus saying He's the Son, He's speaking in Davidic language, in royal terms. This is the royal Son. Remember what Jesus has been doing? He's been going around preaching about the kingdom, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because I'm the King. And the Father's saying, This is my Son. This is the heir of David. He's the one who's going to take the throne. But he doesn't end there. Not only is he the royal son, he's the chosen servant who came to serve his people. That's the language of Isaiah. Do you remember what Isaiah told the people after God takes them into exile? Chapters 1 through 39 is all about them going into exile because of their sin, experiencing the judgment of God. But chapters 40 through 66, God says, listen, though I have to do this to you, it's not the end of the story. I am going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you out of exile. And the language used in Isaiah is Exodus language. I'm going to bring you out of exile. You know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to send my children. And, servant. and you know what he's going to do? He's going to be the suffering servant. And he is going to take your sin. Your sin that got you into Babylon. Your sin that kicked you out of the promised land. He's going to take your sin upon him. And he's going to suffer in your place. That's what, G- that's what the God the Father just said. He's the royal son. He's the chosen servant. And he's the ultimate and final prophet that speaks the very words of God. Notice what God said, listen to him. I think every every person reading Luke's gospel, the original audience would have heard the echoes of Deuteronomy 18 when Moses said, God is going to raise up a prophet greater than me when he comes, listen to him. No wonder Moses was standing there. Now think carefully about the words of, of confirmation spoken by God the Father about the role and identity of Jesus. Get this. In that little statement made by God the Father, we're told that Jesus is the greatest and final prophet. He's the perfect priest who offers himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he's the king of kings. God the Father declares that over Jesus. 
I love the way in which a man by the name of Michael Ramsey summarizes the message that the transfiguration of Christ communicates to us. If we were to step back and say, what, what do we take away from the, from the transfiguration? What message does it communicate to us? Get this. He writes, at the transfiguration, we perceive that the living, Peter, James, and John, and the dead, Moses and Elijah, are one in Christ. And that the old covenant and that the new are inseparable. At the transfiguration, we see that the cross and glory are one, and that the age to come is already here, and that our human nature has a destiny of glory, and that in Christ, the final word is uttered, and in Him alone, the Father is well pleased. All of that was being communicated in that moment. The old and the new are one. The dead and the alive are one. All of that, the, 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 the already has already come. All here at the transformation, the transfiguration. Now, before I draw, us, draw out some points of application, let me just draw our attention to this last verse, verse 36. Luke sums up all that happens and closes out by saying, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So now, they have to keep silent about all that they had seen actually the, the next steps they would take after the transfiguration would prove to be their hardest. Because guess what they have to do now? Come down the mountain, go with Jesus to Jerusalem where he is going to die, and all the while take up their cross and follow him. Now next week, we're going to make our way down the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and we're going to discover some important lessons about how to follow Jesus on a road marked with suffering and hardship and misunderstanding. But before we come down the mountain, what should we take away from this glorious and unusual encounter? Two things. First, that the story of the transfiguration teaches us to prize the revelation we receive in Holy Scripture as being a far more reliable guide to knowing God than personal knowledge or experience. Now, why do I say that? Well, I wonder at any point this morning you've entertained this thought. Josh, what good does it do us to hear about this experience of Peter, James, and John on the mountain? We're not. We didn't get to go there. We didn't see it. We didn't hear it. In some ways, we can think, what benefit to us is this to us? It almost feels like looking at someone else's photos if they went to the Swiss Alps. You may think, oh, that looks cool. I'd love to go there one day, but it's not the same. I wonder if you've entertained that thought. Well, if we have, I want to adjust our perspective by reminding us of something Peter wrote 
in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Listen to this. He writes to this, to this congregation, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And then He goes on to say, And we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as Peter writes to this church that's struggling to believe about the second coming of Christ, Peter's appeal was, I've seen His glory, the glory He will have when He comes again. But don't just take my word on it. You have something better than the transfiguration. You have the word. See, the Lord in His kindness not only has given us a record of all of His redemptive acts, but in the pages of Scripture, He has given us the interpretation of all those acts and events. That's what the Bible is. The Bible isn't just a a record of all that God has done. It's God's interpretation of all He's done, so that, therefore, we don't have to guess. It's not that God just said, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and then you figure it out. The Bible is God saying, here's what I've done, here are promises, and here's what it means. What a gift to us. We don't have to guess what He's like. We don't have to guess what He wants us to do to know Him. We don't have to guess how to worship Him. He has made it abundantly clear. What a gift. Which means we should see the Gospel of Luke as a gift. We have something better than the transfiguration. We have the gospel of Luke. Not just a record of what God did. We have God's interpretation. Explaining to us, what does all this mean? And why does it matter? That's the first thing. We're to take away. Here's the second last one. What else do we learn from this event of the transfiguration? It's this. We must not think that worshiping Christ is always a mountaintop experience. There are times where worshiping Jesus is, is it's like getting a little taste of heaven. There are, there are times like that where worshiping Jesus it feels like all of a sudden all the cares of the world and the troubles and the sorrows and all the things that bombard our souls fill our minds it's almost as if we we get taken away from that for just a few minutes and we we get a taste of heaven sometimes worshiping Jesus is like having a taste of heaven and at other times following and worshiping Jesus feels more like taking up a cross 
See, I believe the story of the transfiguration cautions us. Cautions us to, to avoid making mount, mountaintop experiences the norm. Nothing wrong with the mountaintop experience, but they're not the norm. See, that's what, that's what Peter did. Can we just stay here? No. We've got to come down the mountain. A cross awaits. My cross and yours. We can't stay here. And I would guess that there may be some here this morning that you fit into this category. You're constantly seeking a mountaintop experience with Christ. And maybe you're discouraged because it's not as often as you would like. I would want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, if you think worshiping Jesus is always this taste of heaven, it's always this mountaintop experience, can I encourage you that you may be missing moments along the road of suffering when Jesus is sustaining you by His power and every step of obedience you take, He's pleased by. Maybe you're missing that. Maybe you think, man, worshiping Jesus is this incredible mountaintop experience. No, sometimes it means just getting out of bed when you don't feel like it, putting one foot in front of the other. When all your coworkers and all your peers are cursing the things of God, you, you, you don't give in. How did you not give in? Because the Lord sustained you. And that moment of obedience was pleasing to Him. And if we just think worshiping Jesus always looks like some ecstatic experience, we, we are going to miss some sweet moments with the Savior. And there may be others here this morning. You, you are regularly discouraged because you are the, on the other side. You think, I rarely have a mountaintop experience. Can I just encourage you, if that's you, you are not a lesser Christian. And shame on anybody that makes you feel like that. You are not a lesser Christian. Friends, one day, those who belong to Christ, we will live far beyond the clouds and we will dwell with God for all eternity. And we ourselves with our own eyes will behold his breathtaking glory. And guess what? We're going to hear the voice of the Father. And you know what he's going to say? Well done, good and faithful servant. But until that day comes, we must labor on in faith. And we must prize Jesus above all else. That day is coming when the clouds will part and we will see Him in all of His glory. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. But until that day, until that day, we must labor on in faith and we must prize Him above all else. We must prize Him over experience. We must prize Him enough to suffer for Him. And we must prize Him enough to eagerly wait for His return. But guess what? We can't do that without His help. So I want to close the sermon the same way I began. I want to pray that God would help us to be moved by His glory, not just on the mountains, but in the deepest valleys. So let's pray together.
Father, I ask now that you would do a miracle. That you would do a miracle of opening up our our eyes to you in the day to day when we're not on the mountain and it's not Sunday morning and there's no praise songs. There's the constant record playing in our head of all the mistakes we've made and all of our failures and all the things that we still need to do. We turn on the news and we hear about the war about suffering and sickness and division. Lord, on those days, Lord, would you help us remember your glory and to live for your glory. And on those days, Lord, would you be especially close to us so that we can hear your voice and that we will not grow discouraged Father, thank you for this kind reminder. Thank you for taking us to the mountain today. Now, as we come down and go back into our workplaces and our homes and our schools and our community, may we we radiate with the glory of Christ to those around us who need to know about the perfect priest, prophet, and king who came to save sinners. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.